kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? There, Morris Mashtinsky speaking. You're listening to Love That Album, episode number 41. And uh, I'm very, very pleased to be doing, for the third time in the history of the show, a, a, a format that I call Shooting the Shit, which is basically where I'm too lazy to go write out a whole bunch of notes for one particular <laughs> album. So I ask a group of uh, my good friends in the uh, podcasting community to come and join me, and we just talk about whatever we want to talk about that's music-related, um, albums I've been listening to, uh, music news articles, and all sorts of interesting stuff. I'm really looking forward to the next couple of hours of talk. So, on the line, I have with me, from Sydney, Mr. John Sterrett. Good evening, John. Good evening, Morris. Thank you. Pleasure to be here again. And thanks for taking time off your hectic schedule with Wilco. <laughs> I know they're touring Australia at the moment, so I appreciate your time. Um, We've got a lot of people down here at the moment. I don't know whether um, Eric and Thomas and um, Tim realise we've got uh, Neil Young possibly still in the country. You know, I can't believe that we're in 2013. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got. Um, yeah, hey. we had, we've just had a Neil Young and Crazy Horse play here uh, this day last week. We've got right. Springsteen playing in. Sydney tomorrow, and I'll just add, I'm on a set list blackout, so in case anyone knows anything... <laughs> I know. So, I'm sorry, I, I know the, the, the Brisbane set lists, and, and we're, in, we're in for a trip. Hang on, I've got to introduce just the sold, rest of the crew. Uh, John Spencer, Blues Explosion. Oh, they're, they're, they're down here too. Hang on, guys, hang on, let me introduce the rest of the crew. I've got to do this properly, got to give you the correct build-up from Korea. Via Canada, or was it via, from Canada via <coughs> Korea? Tim Merrill. Via my mum. AKA Ghetto Tim from Ann Arbor in the United States of America. Regular contributor with an album that I love segment, and here in long form, Mr. Eric Peterson, AKA Eric Reanimator. Hello, hello. And last but not least, special guest shooting the shitter from Better in the Dark, and also Love That Album alumnus, Mr. Thomas DJ via New Jersey. Oh, no, New York. I've gone and done it again. Eh? Why, why have I got New Jersey on my mind? I, I could speak with a New Jersey accent if you'd like. I look, I, I'm a dumb Australian. I wouldn't know the difference. Don't no, worry about it. I watch the Sopranos. I'd know the difference. There is no difference. I'm too yeah. Ooh. ooh. As long as it's not Philadelphia, you're good. Dems five yeah. new words. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so John, you were talking about um, about the fact that we're actually in 1983, not 2013, was it? Or? Yeah, exactly. I was just saying to the guys, I think sometimes we're lucky down here, and then sometimes we're starved because you know it's, some, it's so far, and you don't you don't always get every act that you want. But at the moment, with um, Neil Young and Crazy Horse just having played Sydney, we're on the precipice of a, or right in right at the beginnings of a Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band tour. Only Simon a, in ten days. 
Yeah, I think only like in in his you know very long career career, only the fourth time he's ever come to these shorts. So yeah. sometimes we live in the wrong hemisphere. We might have good weather, weather, <clears throat> and then we've got the um, Byron Bay Blues Festival, which gets a pretty stellar lineup. Um, Paul Simon, as Morris mentioned, Robert Plant. Mm. So it's a, it's probably one of the best lineups I think that they've that they've had. They should is that, have. Is that uh, with Plant's new band? Yes. Yep. Right. I'm a, I'm a bit surprised that those guys are uh, there right now, considering that South by Southwest is going on, mm. which is, mm. of course, one of the biggest music events in uh, the United States. Well, so. not not to not to sell South by Southwest short, and we, we're all very aware of its status. But Byron Bay Blues Festival has spent a long time building itself up, like over the last, I think, since what would it be like 1990, John. Easy, yeah, since and, the early nineties. It, it's it continuously gets um you know, great range of artists and uh return return offenders, if you will. They've I think you know, the the guys who, who started up the festival have gone a long way to making artists feel welcome and they get huge crowds. So um South by Southwest may be more famous, but I think a lot of the uh touring artists have a great time when they play Byron Bay. Oh, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I'd say that oh I'm sorry, Tim. It's Eric. That's okay. Uh, I was just say I'm uh, I'm a little surprised. It's it's not necessarily because they wouldn't want to be there. It's just that it's a, that uh, South by Southwest is such a big deal mm. with the business and promoting and all right. of that kind of stuff. Right. But uh, maybe on the other say, hand, go oh, ahead. That it's primarily uh, geared towards the indie side of things, right? So although there has been that kind of overflow in the last like, what say what about five ten years. Oh yeah. Yeah, Most definitely. where you've got like bigger sure. acts now coming in to to bang the sure. drums because that's where the the quote unquote tastemakers are. It's kind of ironic because I've got friends that actually have lived in Austin for years and years, and they just can't wait for the fucking thing to end. <laughs> <laughs> I know the they, feeling. They, they just want everybody like you know. Initially, when South by Southwest started you know rolling, they everybody thought, oh great, you know it's going to bring all this money into the city. And then it brought everything else, yeah. and then it just and then it just got completely out of hand. And now you've got this, you know, rolling circus sideshow that comes in once a year for so many days, and everybody, like I say, they just can't fucking wait for it to leave. Yeah. It's I, kind I, of I, like San Diego's um, relationship with Comic Con. They mm, can't yeah. stand having it, but because right, it's, right. it's the big right. spike on right. their, their revenue calendar, they can't right. not have it. Right. Well, my yep. friend Deb, it's so funny. She said, you know, it's like they took Burning Man out of the desert and they just dropped it in the middle of Austin. Well, we, we have an art fair here every summer that uh, it's three days long. And I always describe it as a million people come to town, they hand each other money, they drop their garbage and they leave. And, <laughs> right. uh, so I, I know what it feels like to have your town invaded. And, right. you, you know, you just... After after about a day and a half, it's just get out of my face. Let me do, let me get on with my life, kind of thing. Yeah, it, so I completely understand that. We've just had the this one... weekend the um, in, in Melbourne the Grand Prix or the Grand Prix, as I like to call it, and um, the the area in Melbourne where that where that does, I think it's like uh, it, it's a place called Albert Park, and like, I think they start uh, basically taking people's access to the roads around Albert Park Lake away from you know, a couple of weeks before and 
they don't get access back for you know another couple of weeks afterwards, and um, it, it just you know smells. And it doesn't matter where you are; it can be like about twenty kilometers away from the track, and you still all you hear is. And the people in Adelaide complained years and years ago that you know Melbourne stole its race. I think he can fucking have it back. We don't want it. But at least some of us don't. Some of but us think, don't want it. Yeah. The beauty of the Byron Bay Blues Festival for us, though, is we don't get the invasion. You know, the I guess the sleepy town of Byron Bay does. But what say typically Sydney and Melbourne will get will be little sideshows of the artists that play Byron Bay either before or after the festival. Mm. Normally around about you know, this time of year. One thing I find kind of funny, in Ottawa, in Ontario, where I'm from, they have a blues fest too. And I mean, I'm not trying to split hairs here or be pretentious, but I can't understand why they call something a blues fest when there's such a wide variety of artists, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't get it. You know, yeah, that's just me. like what Newport has become now, because Newport right. used to be a pure jazz festival. Now it's like sure. whoever decides to show up. Sure, right. sure. I remember um, speaking to uh, a lady who runs um, one of the CD shops here in Melbourne, and um, you know, her big thing is going to um, uh, Adelaide during the WOMAD Festival, or WOMADelaide as they call it, and that's been running quite a long time too. And I think right from the beginning, I mean, as well as having all the world music acts, they welcomed, you know, acts, you know I think Crowded House and Midnight Oil, and she was, you know, pretty incensed. The fact that so oh well you know why are they doing that they have to put uh, they have to put bums on seats they have to have acts of you know, that stature why can't we just have a pure world music festival and I'm thinking well you know you run a business you of all people should understand why they have to have you know, a couple of crowd pullers and you know but even if right. it's like ninety five percent of what you expect it to be then you're doing pretty damn well and I think probably out of all the festivals I think the WOMED festival at least locally is really <laughs> kept the best to its brief. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I... to be fair... Oh, sorry, Tim. No, go ahead, Tom. Um, for me, like, for the longest time here <coughs> in New York, we had with uh, the CMJ Festival. I mean, we still have it, but it's like a very, very pale ghost of what it once was. Mm -hmm. And one of the the joys of that, that one week here, running hither and yon from venue to venue, was the fact that they would you'd have these pairings or and these these you know evenings where you would get these these groupings of bands that would never exist in the same universe at the same time usually um like i, I you would see like new folker brenda khan opening for the at the time debuting for the first time in america oasis uh -huh. <laughs> and that was to me that was that was the great joy of that 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 period so to speak before see you know the college music journal went out of business and then cmj just became this kind of specter of when it once it once was but i think i think that it's kind of like you know it's almost like this fight club thing is you know the first rule is you don't tell anybody <laughs> <laughs> well you know in our area in our area, they tried to do a north by north something or other, which of in course Toronto, only lasted. Yeah, well, only lasted. North by northeast, yeah. Okay, and uh, it it didn't. I don't think it took off very well. And on one hand, it, it, that's kind of lame because you think, well, I'd like to see all these great bands and young bands and all of that kind of stuff. On the other hand, you think, you know, maybe we don't want the hassle in our town 
or our area. Well, like, for example, when they did the North by Northeast in Toronto a couple of years ago, they had uh, the Stooges play for free on Young Street, which is the main street in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And they they blocked off, I think it was like four four blocks of the street. And that's they they, they pulled in over, I think it was like something like 20,000 people. And it was just insane. Just to see the Stooges play it. No, it wasn't the Stooges. It was just the it was the Stooges, uh, the Pretenders. Well, Chrissy Hine and a couple of people. I forget who else played too. But but they actually. Well, I think we stopped. can safely say the Pretenders are basically Chrissy Hines and whoever she happens to have in the studio that right, day. Right, right, right. But it was uh, they blocked the traffic, like they blocked commerce. It was just a total uh, middle of the afternoon, like you know, I think about four o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock. Everything was just sewn up like a drum man it was done you know so i mean that's good that you know they played for free sure but at the same time it's kind of like you know what if what if your family was having a heart attack or something and they you know, your your dad's in an ambulance or your spouse is in the ambulance and they're trying to get across town and it's like sorry dude the stooges are playing you gotta wait you know you know it's funny on when um wilco went and released their sky blue sky album uh, it came with a bonus DVD of uh, Jeff Tweedy talking about the recording of the album and all the songs. And he mentioned a very similar story. I think, I don't know if it was, he was in, somewhere in Chicago or he was somewhere else, but there was some lengthy parade or something like that. And he just wanted to get across the road to get to his house and, uh-huh. or, or wherever he was going. And it was like for, he would have had to have gone like 10 miles in the other direction. To sure. just be able to you know, go and come back. He couldn't get across the road to wherever he was going. Right. It's bizarre. Um, all right, look, let's um, maybe have a quick break. And what we'll do when we come back, we'll have a uh, bit of a chat about uh, what it is that we've been listening to of late. We've got a lot to catch up because this is a segment that I um, eschewed uh, for this year. Don't know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, but anyway, it gives us uh, a lot to talk about this time around. So what we'll do... Um, I'm going to play a track uh, for you, the listeners out there. Um, this is from a fellow called James McDonald and his band, The Art of War. Any of you who listen to the Silver and Gold podcast would know him as Bad James. And now, Bad James has gone and sent me a few songs uh, from his band, The Art of War. He lives over uh, in Geraldton, which I think is three hours north of the um, I'm on the other side of the country, so shame on me not knowing my geography. But um, yeah, so anyway, if you want to hear more of uh, uh, James, you can go to the website www.reverbnation.com forward slash the art of war. And also, if you go, uh, probably by the time this is up, to check out uh, Michael Persh's podcast, Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, I think he'll have been doing an interview with James about the art of war. But uh, what we'll do is we'll play a track for you now. This is called A Small Victory. And then uh, the rest of us will be back to um, talk about what we've been listening to. Like you're listening to Love That Up. We'll be back shortly. Oh, 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 
like movies? Do you like podcasts? Do you like podcasts where a guy talks about movies? It's not that very encouraging, but okay. You should tune in to Justin Oberholter's Filmwave, where each week I review a couple of movies and whatever else comes to mind. Now, does that sound good? Really? What if I got you a celebrity endorsement? Hey, this is Sylvester Stallone. Listen to Justin Oberholter's Filmwave. This guy's the cinematicist. He watches all the films that star Stone Cold Steve Austin. Ah, much better. So tune in to Justin Oberholter's Filmwave. Go to freakingawesomenetwork.com, filmrave.lips.com, or subscribe on iTunes. And we're back from break. Morris here, Tim, Eric, John and Thomas there. Uh, you'll listen to episode 41 of Love That Album, and I think I'll call this episode Son of Shooting the Shit. Does that work for you guys? I'll do a Frank Zappa, which means the next time it'll have to be enough of shooting the shit or... or, or Shut up and shoot. Or beneath, beneath the planet of shooting the shit. <laughs> we'll come up with something. Son of, is that a monster magnet reference there? Uh, no, I'm afraid it's not. Uh, well, I you know the band I, I, think, I, think it's a, I think it's a universal horror movie reference. Mm. Mm. Works for me. Anyway, look what we'll do. Um, so we'll go in, around the table, as it were, the uh, worldwide table. Uh, so we'll start off with Tim. What's... Um, what have you been listening? Oh, and we're going to, yeah, one at a time. Let's see what we got and how long this lasts. We might end up filling it's up like a whole two hours. Whole two hour. Yeah, indeed. We might fill the whole two hours just talking about what we've been listening to. So, Tim, you start. All righty. Well, I've been all over the place lately for in terms of what I've been listening to. Uh, but I guess I'll start with, uh, I went back and dug into uh, Steve Earle. Nice. I've been uh, getting into uh, Well, I Feel All Right, yep. one of his later uh, 90s albums. I think it came out in about 96. Mm. And uh, the one he put in and after that, El Corazon, that's oh. an amazing album, mm. too. It, it is. It, we've covered that one on the show, I think, with, what a uh, great with stretch. Jeff. Mm. Uh, what a great artistic stretch, that period of Steve Earle, Tim. Mm. You know, like he he's a character for me that, um, you know... I, I don't want to sound kind of, you know, uh, maudlin or anything, but if there's anybody in America today that's kind of the embodiment of Woody Guthrie, it's kind of spooky the way Steve Earle, some of his songs, and just uh, mm. the way he holds himself. It's yeah. just to me, you know, he's got, a, he's got, he's got, he's almost like the ghost of Woody Guthrie, like I say. Even and more so, the, even more so than, um, Say Rykuda, what Rykuda's become of late? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Cooter, Cooter to me is more of a international vagabond. You know, Cooter. <laughs> I mean, he. I'm saying that because for Cooter, he he's played all over the world with anybody and everybody. Yep. You know, and I mean, for example, you know, he's played with the Pahini Brothers down in uh, Hawaii, the slack guitar. Legends, and um, you know he's played. He's played all over the world. I mean, you know he's played in Japan. He's played all over the place. But Earl, to me, feels more like uh, the Earth. I don't know how to explain it, but he's more of a he's more of a bread in the bone kind of guy for me. Right. But I I, you know, I love Cooter too. But um, the other album too that I was digging into that I just pulled out of the book I haven't listened to in a long, long time was an album that. 
Steve Earle did with Del McCory called The Mountain. Oh, yeah. I love that. That's a fantastic record. Oh, uh, you know, and it's 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 weird. It's uh, I was talking to uh, a gentleman's guy who was talking to Samurai. who was saying that, you know, there's those films that are your comfort films whenever you're in a shitty mood or whatever, you throw something on and just it's like a bomb. And for me, The Mountain is one of those albums. It's just, I don't know, like, feels like an old uh, iron shirt. Right. You know, after, you know, it's just a nice, warm, warm, clean iron shirt. You know, you put it on and it just feels so good, you know. It, it, it's the sort of album I'd love to read, like, a book about the making of the album because I believe that, you know, McElroy and, and uh, Earl did not come out friends at the end of that recording. Well, no. I think uh, McElroy, famous, uh, wasn't too enamoured with Steve's um, frequent use of the (laughs) F-word. Let's magnetise these motherfuckers. Mm. Yeah. 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 And doesn't he say something like at the beginning of the album, come on, put your hat on, you can't be a member of the club if you don't keep your hat on or something. Yeah, that's right, that's right. (laughs) uh, And going going in the opposite direction, I've been going back and listening to a lot of Sly and the Family Stone again. Nice. Yeah, there's a riot going on. Oh man, that album there, like, there's not not a lot to be said. I mean, you just drop the needle, and you know, about half an hour later, you pick your jaw up off the floor. Right. It's. I, I guess you know, like the, the interesting thing about Slaying the Family Stone. I mean, we we talk a lot about Booker T and the MGs, and rightly so, about what they did um, you know, at a you know, time in America's history for um, uh, black and white musicians working together and it was sure. just perfectly natural there was no big deal made of it but Sly and the Family Stone it was not only natural but they also tackled those issues head on as well as making really some of the most joyous party music ever well you know it's so funny because you know you think about it at that time for him to write a song like you know don't call me nigger whitey yes you know like holy shit! Like you know, you you couldn't get away with that stuff today. No. Like it just wouldn't it just wouldn't happen, you know. But I mean, they were so radical. I mean, I put Sly and the Family Stone right up there alongside the MC5 in the terms of uh, where they were trying to come from about being head on, like you said, you know. Yep. And it wasn't just about the music; it was about their whole intent about social revolution, you know, and about the idea that change if any change was going to come it wasn't going to come from above it had to come from the street you know? yeah yeah it's I, a shame I, I, tim how he's just if you've seen recent um on a downer i suppose he's he's barely hanging in there at the moment yeah last few, it's, last few years it's sad you know it's really sad i mean he was living in a trailer allegedly in la and uh there was a a european tour that collapsed where he mm. i guess he was trying to play in England somewhere. Some friends I know had actually went in and went into London for a weekend and they, they paid for a hotel and everything and just to see Sly Stone and his band. And he wound up coming out doing, I think like three songs and he was barely stable and he left and the band just continued and played the rest. So, I mean, you know, I had heard he was in a bad way, but I didn't realize just how. Yeah. He had a bigger, there's a, there's a kind of high profile appearance on an award show. And, and yeah, his, his whole appearance was pretty bizarre and didn't right. last that very long. Right, that was like the Grammys. I think yeah, it was the it was. Grammys. Yeah, where he came out and he had a mohawk 
mohawk and glasses and he came out and he played for a bit but it yeah you're right it was it was pretty odd but uh there was i, I think there were du two dutch brothers who were working on a documentary about sly stone and they've been trying to put it together for the last three or three or four years and they re they found him because he was in seclusion and uh they were helping try to kickstart his career again and to get him to put out a new album and he was one of those guys, sadly, I guess, that was always running around with that magic cassette in his pocket of, you know, the next thing that was going to come down the pipe. And he just needs the money. Gonna, you know, once he gets this out, that's, you know, he's going to be right as rain. But I guess a lot of people have, nobody's really heard it. So, you know, but yeah, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because when you see the potential, when you see like the actual output of that guy and where he was just on another planet, and you couldn't touch that. Like, no. You couldn't touch that. I mean, holy shit. And I mean, he, he could go from like the nastiest, funkiest stuff. You know, I mean, like like P-Funk, deep down, dirt, dirty funk. He can go from that to like everyday people, which yeah. is like, you know, everybody always goes on about Dylan and blowing in the wind. But to me, everyday people should be right up there alongside of it. You know? Right. Yeah, the other thing I've been listening to lately is um, a couple of things. There's uh, last time we were talking about uh, Daptone Records, right? And uh, there's a band called the Budos Band. Yep, yep. And I've been digging into them lately and uh, quite liking it, you know. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I, she, I'm surprised she's normally. I think Sharon Jones is normally here with uh, the Daptone. Kings, like I think every um, uh, just about every summer, she hasn't been out here this um, this summer yet. So well, summer's over, but we're nearly over. But um, no doubt she'll be here within a few months. And uh, the last thing I guess I've been listening to since last week, and I was going to talk about this a bit later, but uh, the passing of one Mr. Alvin Lee. Right. Ten years after, man. Holy shit! I mean. You know, everybody goes on about Paige and uh, Clapton, you know, and how proficient they were, you know, when it came to plugging in. But Alvin Lee, that guy was, he, man, he, he was on a world of his own. I mean, he, he was a modern astronaut. You know, he just plugged in and he launched and he was gone, man. Like, you listen to uh, Live at the Fillmore East, the 1970 uh, live recording of 10 years after. And holy shit, like, just... I still, to this day, don't know how that guy was able to play that fast. <laughs> and and uh, the rhythm section he had, uh, Leo, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of his name now. But, uh, the ba uh, uh, What's his name now here? Uh, hang on. Leo Lyons, that's what it was. Leo Lyons, man. Like, his bass playing, him and, him and uh, Alvin together were just phenomenal. I mean... The rhythm section of 10 years after to begin with was just killer. And everybody always knows, you know, them from uh, the famous Woodstock footage, I'm Going Home. Right. But uh, I I got into them through my old man, because my, my old man and my uncle, you know, used to play Cricklewood Green and A Space and Time. And, you know, and that's another another band, too, that is kind of like Sly and a Family Stone with everyday people. You know, Alvin Lee, I'd love to change the world. I mean, what a what a wicked song that was, you know. And it just it had a real 
message to it. Mm. But anyway, uh, that's about all I've been listening to recently off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, we'll go along to um, Eric. What are a few oh. more albums that you love? Okay, well, <clears throat> unfortunately, I haven't been listening to a whole lot of music lately, but what I have been listening to is uh, kind of a little bit scattered. Okay. So the first thing is I did pick up the complete catalog of the uh, Highwaymen, the Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, and Willie Nelson supergroup from the 80s. Right. I think I had one of their albums and then about half of another from various places. And, uh, you know, it, musically it's a little overproduced, the studio stuff, but solid selection of songs, well played, with um, great interplay between between those guys. So, so who produced those albums, Eric? I want to say... Um, who did? Well, I'm not sure off the top. I, I'm well, not don't sure worry about it. Just a minute. Uh, let's see. Somebody named Chips Moran, Moran did the first one. And, um, yeah, I don't see a, a listing here real quickly of, of who did the, the other two. But they did, um, they did work with a whole bunch of, of people. And... Additionally to the, to the four main guys, but it's it's a lot of uh, 80s, 70s, contemporary country stuff, or, or more maybe more um, more edgy country stuff. Mm. You know, there's some Jimmy Webb and some Guy Clark, and I think they might have even covered Steve Earle on that wow. record. Robert Earl Keane is another songwriter whose tracks they uh, they recorded. So good stuff, though. Just very listenable. And, you know, okay. So I guess Don Was was actually involved in some of it as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else? So <clears throat> then um, there's a band called Ball Saga, who are a symphonic metal band. That excuse me, some that symphonic black metal band. So let me ask: Did VK put you on? No, she did not. I've been I've been listening to this band off and on for years. Okay. Uh, one of my my friends, Big Tony, uh, is actually a big fan. And it's uh, very, they very much musically remind me of the band Sky that you put me on. Really? Uh, yeah, musically, it, it, they have that same kind of classical, heavy metal-ish, you know, instrumental feel. But of course, with the, the black metal vocals. Now, I know that black metal isn't everybody's thing. And I know that it's a, you know, it's an acquired taste. But I think it, I've come to see it as like punk rock that once you get past the, um, once you get get past the initial shock of being exposed to it, that, that you know it's got a certain energy and a certain kind of groove to it, all of its own. Mm. And uh, these guys, they uh, they have a very kind of comic booky, pulp fictiony, like Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft um, feel to their music. And I've been listening to their um, album, The Power Cosmic, and uh, another one called Atlantis Ascendant, which are these uh, black metal concept albums. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the last thing is, uh, it's a band from the 90s called Animal Bag that pretty much didn't go anywhere. They were originally from uh, North Carolina, so there's a, a <coughs> mixture of kind of this alternative metal grunge sound with uh, <coughs> a little bit of southern rock. Mm-hmm. And they put out three three albums, uh one of which I shouldn't say put out they released two albums 
and recorded a third that was never officially released. But the first record is, you know, an electric, straight-ahead, alternative southern rock record. But their second record, which I'm actually going to do a segment on eventually, uh, it's actually an acoustic one. It's more of an EP where they cover Crosby, Still, Nash. They cover um, Jethro Tull. And, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. Sounds great. All right. So that's it. Okay. Um, all right. Thanks for that. Uh, John? You're probably a bit like uh, Tim. I'm all over the musical map at the moment. Uh, I love bit, diversity on this show. Yeah, a bit schizophrenic. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'll throw this out to the guys. Um, do you ever, like, I guess, music nuts like us, when you find someone, you know, an artist that you, you, you knew he was out there, but you never really tried any of his music, and then you find someone, you go, why haven't I been listening to this guy for 20 years? Well, it happened to me, uh, uh, a guy that's unfortunately not, no longer with us, he died uh, way too young, Willie DeVille. Yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, I, I had I had um, probably about two or three years ago, which I didn't realise at the time. You know, it must have been his last album, Pistola, and I and I kind of liked it, but you know, in this, um, you know, we've spoken about this on the show before. You get so much stuff that you know, just um, you know, you, you forget about it. And I don't know what led me, but I, start, uh, I just sort of read up a bit about him. I said, you know, why haven't I checked this guy out? Because he's got such an incredible um, breadth of Americana and rock and soul and there's Cajun in there and, you know, everything doo-wop. And he, and he's you realise, really... John, he, he did the soundtrack to The Princess Bride too, eh? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't, didn't. And also that, I think... That was Mark Knopfler. But no, he, it was Willie DeVille singing on that. Yeah, and, really? and I think also too, um, uh, Tim, I didn't realise as well, I think he did another soundtrack not as, I think, well-known with Knopfler, like I'm talking you know, mid to late 80s. And, um, and, and as I say, you know, he died um, too young from uh, cancer at 58. But I've just I've just really hooked into his last couple of albums, um, this Pistola, Crow Jane Alley, and now I'm sort of delving back through his Mink Deville catalogue. Um, oh, yeah. there's, there's a great um, compilation album called Spanish Stroll, and I got a um, deluxe, um, I think Raven Records, you know, down here um, released. That's our um, equivalent of Rhino Records down yeah. here. That's that's run by um, Glenn A. Baker, isn't it? Exactly, mm. and um, it's a re- it's a really it's an expanded edition of La Chat Bleu, and um, Glenn A. Baker does the liner notes. You know, he's a pretty well-known uh, rock historian. You guys may or may not have come across him, and yeah, so I'm sort of in that um, euphoria of. It's, it's also euphoria and it's also dangerous for your um, wallet when you find this artist and go, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God, you know. And, and, and I think, you know, we've spoken about it on the show. People like us, we don't stop it. Oh, yeah, I'll just, get, I'll just try three albums. No, we need all 33 or 43. <laughs> so I'm on a slippery slope. So I've, I've got his... Um, I just sort of did a bit of reading up on him. And that's the part I love is when you find, you find these guys that have got a deep catalogue... It's almost like, you know, you don't have that. Okay, you don't have that experience of oh, you've just you're, you've discovered the artist and you're going through them as their career goes. But it's almost like you've got a smorgasbord of 
let me at the best ones or you know and and I, and I like sometimes too is you know you, I'll even buy if, I, if I'm rooting for an artist I'll, I'll buy their failures because you want to see you want to I guess see and live their career arc you know you see where they were bad and then you see how they come back artistically and so I got another one of his albums which I think in in his solo career which uh, interests me the most, you know, I guess what he did post Mink DeVille, which I think is from about 87 onwards, an album called Backstreet's of Desire. And Morris, I think you'd like him, it's probably, you know, this is a you know, too broad a uh, comparison, but he's very street level, you know, street level poetry. He's, it sort of reminds me of a little bit of Springsteen, Wild of the Innocent and the East Street Shuffle era. Well, you know, then I'm sold. Yeah, that's, that's my favourite. And, and he's I also that, got a little bit of uh, Roy Roy Orbison in him too, yeah. I think. And and his his voice is is, is amazing. It, it 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 can go from that Roy Orbison, as you said, Tim, to literally a Tom Waits type growl. Uh -huh. I've gone and made a note of um, Spanish stroll. Was it that was the anthology? Yeah. I'll, I'll start there. It's, I think that's a good place. That's where you'll get it. And, and I think, you know, and um, Eric or Thomas or Tim will probably be able to talk more eloquently than I can, but I, I think Mink DeVille started off in that CBGB New York. Right. Yeah, 70s, yes. around the time of the Talking Heads, yeah, when the Talking Heads and the television. And I think one of the things that people don't know about that era was that especially in New York City, when you were talking about punk, it was a lot of different sounds. There was a rockabilly revival, yeah. there was soul, there was, you know, power pop, there was... And there was no... Everything. No compartmentalization. You would have um, somebody like, you know, the Ramones rubbing elbows with the more discified version, you know, of, uh, of Blondie. Right. It sure, was sure. more of a egalitarian as opposed to nowadays when everybody stays in their own little boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was more about the energy and the uh, the excitement rather than the, 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 you know, this is how we tune our guitars and this is what kind of equipment we use and this is the song structure we use kind of a deal. And the feeling I get, I guess, yeah, retrospectively is that um, from that era, I think um, it's kind of what you guys said, it, it's... It, you know, I think Mink DeVille doesn't, you know, isn't classic punk of that era, but it's really the artists that congregated in that area and at that club. It was more of the attitude and the aesthetic. Well, are you familiar with the term garage punk, which yeah. has come to, to kind yeah. of over, like, be an umbrella over all kinds of high energy yeah. or, you know, basic, primitive... You know, all of those kinds of adjectives that describe everything from, you know, jump blues and, um, you know, rockabilly and 60s garage and 70s glam and late 70s punk rock. I mean, that that's why all of those those acts could go together, because yeah. it, it wasn't the sound that was that was the common link. It was the intent and the theme and the, the um, you know, the the inspirations and all of that. Right. I mean, cause like, I think it was a lot of the honesty too, because I think that in a lot of that music, it was just people wanting to be heard, wanting wanting to just kind of play what they wanted to play, you know. And anything that didn't really fit in, that wasn't on, you know, uh, AM radio, was pretty mm -hmm. much deemed punk. 
You know, I mean, you knew, you knew that you were either Fleetwood Mac or you were punk. You know, it, it was just kind of like that kind of melting pot of well, we we don't know where to fit them in. You know, it's like you got a guy like James Chance and the Contortions screaming with a saxophone. You got Suicide, which are like these two guys creating industrial music before industrial music. You oh yeah. The Ramones, which are like, you know, uh, the Beach Boys hopped up on speed. And, <laughs> and you know, you, you get you get all this stuff that doesn't really uh, fit into any, you know, like, I mean, if you're if you're a, an industry guy trying to market this stuff, there's no way you can. So they're just punks. You know, it's it just this is also ahead. why somebody, somebody like Johnny Cash can go from, uh, you know, doing Hey Porter and Folsom Prison Blues to to uh, maybe some more singer-songwriter stuff in the 70s and end up covering, you know, Soundgarden and Nine Inch Nails and conversely, John Doe from X or Alejandro Escovedo from The Nuns can go from doing that kind of punk rock to doing, you know, cla- almost classic country and uh, yeah, roots like, music. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you, you look at the Alvin line. Look at the Alvin Brothers. I mean, you know, with the blasters, and you mm. know, I mean, look, oh, yeah. look where they went from the blasters on. I mean, it's the same same thing you're talking about there. Right, right. I mean, they've, they've sort of gone for that high blast energy, Los Angeles rock and roll of the early '80s to being sort of you know, more more classical, not uh, more classic sort of um, acoustic-y country sounds now. But I'm sure there's a lot looking into all. All areas, but, right. you know, but um, yeah, no, just I, mean, uh, I, I guess it's, it's that thirst to sort of explore and do more, you know, more than one thing. I mean, that's what makes you know, a real musician. But it's the musicians; they 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 don't want to be put into a box. I like all music. Yeah. In rather, it, it's it's the companies who, who you know have traditionally gone and said, "Well, this is where we made our money. Continue to do that." Um, I was, a, a few weeks ago, I was on. Um, Ben Eisen's all-time top time, top ten show doing our favorite Beatles covers, and one of my favorites was uh, Ray Charles' version of Yesterday, and he said that he wondered how Ray Charles would have felt hearing this English band doing this, you know, doing this uh, song very prim and proper Yesterday, and I said, well, you know what? We're talking about a man who had, you know, gone and not exactly ditched his uh, R&B and blues and jump leanings and went into country. We're to- yeah, so we're talking about a man who obviously loved all sorts of things and he thought, that music sounds really cool to me. I'm going to do something with it my way. But, you know, like Johnny Cash saw, you know, heard all this other music, you know, that Rick Rubin had thrown at him and said, well, I, I can take that Soundgarden song. I can right. take that Nick Cave song and I can do my thing with it, but you know, I, I think not the to deviate, not to deviate too far from this, but have you guys ever heard uh, Ed James's cover of Alice Cooper's "Only Women Bleed"? I think you put me onto it. Fantastic! Oh, it's, he just destroys it, and I mean, and I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean, just oh man, you know. And I think that's that's the thing is that. You know, I've always said that the greatest kind of music is the music that can be played in any form, and it still retains its kind of uh, its essence. You know, right? I mean, I you, you can do a rock I... and roll. 
you can do a rock version of Johnny Cash. You can do a rock version of Johnny Cash, and you still know it's Johnny Cash. Mm. Or you can do Muzak Johnny Cash, and you still know it's fucking Johnny Cash. (laughs) And more importantly, Johnny Cash would respect you for doing a rock version of Johnny Cash. Oh yeah. Mm. You know, um, I I think this is the this is something this kind of adventurousness, this fearlessness that we saw in the in the seventies and the eighties with popular music is what's lacking now. And yeah. that's, that's an interesting point that you make because I know a lot of people came out of the 70s thinking, ugh, what went wrong? And yet here we are like in 2013 and we're thinking, you know, wow, it was a great era of experimentation. There were all sorts of good things going on. And yeah, sure, there yeah. was Drek, but there was Drek in, you know, the, the, the supposed holy grail of the 60s too. There's always sure. going to be Drek. I mean, it, it's funny, recently... Um, the, the music site Popdose did a it was almost like a, it was a year plus series where they went through the AM Gold box sets uh, track by track and discussed each of the, the songs that were contained within and the one thing they came away with was that popular music in the 70s was a lot more egalitarian and a lot more um, pitched towards a higher intellectual level where it was okay to have uh, a pure country song side by side with a disco song, side by side with a uh, you know a, a pure a pure folk song. Whereas now, popular music in the United, in, at least here in the United States, I can't speak for where everybody is around the world here. It's all one thing. It's this kind of dance-oriented, what they refer to laughably as R and B. Hear the air quotes, can't you guys? <laughs> um, with the auto tune and the—I mean, even even hip hop. I, I, you know, I'm I'm a New York kid. I remember hearing the first hip hop songs mm-hmm. on WBLS here in New York and loving it. And now even hip hop has become all about, hey, look at my Timberland. I'm really rich. I'm going to get some ass. It's it's. Everything, everybody's now has to be in their own little box now. Well, it's that's, that's the uh, mainstream, though. If you look at what's going on on the internet and in the underground, I just saw this clip last night of Henry Rollins talking about the state of music. And basically, his summation was keep your nickel back and your rascal flats and your right. whatever's on the charts. But, you know, there's all these kids out there making all these weird things and they're doing, you know, 15 copies of it. And they don't want to be part of the system. And the but brilliant, I, of course. Oh, sorry, Art. Go ahead. I would say I want to going back to John. I wanted to ask you if <clears throat> if you've checked out um, Robert Gordon, who was kind of the the rockabilly version of Willie Deville yeah, funny, during the funny CBGs. Funny you should ask, Eric. I had a little I had a little dalliance with Robert Gordon a few years ago via Link Ray. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I got a couple of um, the uh, I can't think of the titles, but they were like. Um, they look like you know, sort of cheap throwaways. Link Ray was sort of, you know, I say it uh, not disrespectfully, but he was reduced to um, making a buck, I guess, as Robert Gordon's sideman and guitarist. Yeah. And I, and I think it was a late 70s pairing where those two guys actually played around the traps and I would say probably raised a lot of hell. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and one of the, I was going to say one of the best shows I saw 
years ago was I saw uh, Robert Gordon and Chris Bedding. Wow. Mm. That was... Uh, you know, what, yeah. I, what I would have killed to have seen was Robert Gordon with Danny Gatton. Mm. I think and, they, they did an album together called The Humbler or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and, and I'm probably still kicking myself. Robert Gordon was playing here in Sydney only about, well, it seems like only three or four years ago at a small club, and, uh, and I didn't get to it. And, uh, and it got quite a good review by the, um, basically the indie press. You know, we have free uh, music rags that come out each week. And he got, he got quite a good review that he still has all the energy and, and everything. But, um, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good comparison that, yeah, Gordon, Gordon's the rockabilly version of DeVille. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, this Willie DeVille guy, I, I'm, I think I'm standing on a slope and um, I'm about to be swept away. He's, he's, he's got a lot of um, eclectic eclectic um, musical styles and he's, he's the only thing with- I wanted to say John when you're talking about earlier with with uh, you say that you know when somebody passes and you get you know their whole kind of discography at your disposal one fell swoop yeah. it's really easy just to kind of gorge yourself on it you know just kind of like a smorgasbord you know it is. but I find I find the best way I, I you know and I'd never tell anybody how to listen to music at all but I find for myself the best way is I chip off a little and then I'll just put it away for, you know, a couple of months and then I'll I'll grab another album and chip off a little and then because if I do if I don't do it like that, I'm gonna sit there and pour through all of it um in a month and a half. And not and I don't think I'd really fully appreciate it. And I, I think just, you're, I just, you're spot on there. I think that's sage advice. Yeah, it's just it's just, you know, it's like wine. You mm. know, it's uh, you can't uh, sit there and just guzzle it all down in one fell swoop. Like you, you know, well, it's maybe, like you, maybe you can. Mm. <laughs> it's it's. I'm sort of actually. It's funny, Eric. I'm I'm doing a variation of what I think you suggested at the first shooting the shit episode. You know, I'll, I've got all these piles of CDs sitting, mm-hmm. you know, next to my computer, and you load them up onto iTunes, and then and and then you got them on your iPod, and you go, what the hell, you know. So what I've been doing is just making little playlists. You know, it'll be, uh, and I normally do it. I normally do it on a weekend. It's sort of my reward on a weekend. I'll load, you know, seven or eight albums. And I'll make a list of just one song of each album, and I've got those playlists as a reference point to go back to say, to make sure I don't miss out on anything. And also, by making those, you know, playlists, it's sort of like a representation of where your head was at musically. You know, you can say, oh, March, I was into Willie Deville and. I was into you know whatever the next artist I'm going to talk about, but and and I agree, and that's kind of what I've been doing, Tim. I've been I'm, I upload a few things, and then I purposely don't upload some stuff to sort of um, uh, so I'm not feasting too much. Right. But it, uh, let's call it a musical crypt feed. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so what else have you been listening to? Um, the other guy. Uh, again, uh, it's a, he's a guy I've been sort of, uh, he's been a go-to guy for me for about the last decade. We touched upon him briefly in the last episode, but I've started delving back into his back catalogue and Alendro uh, Escobedo. Right. I actually got his Street Songs of Love album. Very nice, uh, very nice. And the one that really impressed the hell out of me, and, and it was sort of one I knew of, and I said, oh, I won't get that one because it's a bit, it doesn't sound like it's a proper album. And it isn't quite, but by the hand of the father. And it's called Songs, Stories, and Original Theatre Work. 
And Morris, it's kind of a it's it's kind of a concept album about his family that came to America. Yep. And it's just it's one of those you know, and the immigrant, the whole immigrant experience, and it's just got an incredible song on there, um, which I actually first heard on his Man Under the Influence album called Wave. And and I had no idea that it originated earlier than a Man Under the Influence. Mm-hmm. And. I guess he's he's sort of the yin to Willie Deville's yang, as I think Eric might have mentioned. He was sort mm-hmm. of in that mm-hmm. punk movement of uh, mid '76, and how many? You know, again, the the smorgasbord is rich of every cuisine you could want. So I, I actually endangered my life. I knew I had a stache. I did a I did a massive trade. Uh, of what we'll say, recordings of indiscriminate origin, <laughs> indeterminate, <laughs> uh, indeterminate origin, and I and I knew I had this massive. Um, I did a, I did a trade with this guy in California, and I knew I had, I had nuns stuff. I had rank and file. I had the setters. Yeah. I had true believers. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't have zeros. But speaking of zeros, what then? Then when I'm going on to Helendro. I found an absolute ripper of a little album by his brother Javier called City Lights, done in about um, 2008. Really, um, you know, really catchy, and you know, you can, the, the musicality that comes out of that family is incredible. Oh yeah. And the, the great thing with Alendro, and um, you know, again to talk of um, indeterminate origins. There's artists that are recording friendly, and there's artists that aren't. And he's very recording friendly, so you can you can go to sites like archive.org. And you, can, you can almost literally get his show from last week, and, and, you know, and invariably good quality. And so, and t- Tim, taking your theory, and you, you'll be interested in this, Eric. I've got sitting in my pile of CDs by the computer, but I'm not going to load them up. I'm, I'm going to. Um, you know, feast slowly. I've got Buick, McCain, the pawn shop years, mm-hmm. Lentro, Escovito with these hands, um, Big Station, which is one of my was one of my my favorite albums of last yeah. year. Uh, Real Animal, uh, which I I think is the place to start with him. Yeah, and um, yeah, what a what a great artist, and he, he's still going strong. He did a set which I'm very interested in, but and I think it, I think it's destined for a live DVD release. He basically did some uh, a set um, around about December last year, where he actually distilled all all those bands I mentioned. He basically encapsulated his entire career with uh, the Lost Lonely Boys, which was a lot of uh-huh. yeah a lot of the musos yeah. that he worked with over the years. And I've just got a feeling that it'll it'll probably come out as a live release. The last time I saw Alejandro Escovito on uh, uh, what was it there, Austin City Limits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was one that I think it was him and Joe Ely, mm. and the bo- the both of them were playing together, and that was hot. That mm. was that was that was really really good. And, and I think it's no accident that he you know he got. Um, you know, that award he got um, Artist of the Decade by No Depression magazine because yep. the, the sense I got out of him is his his songwriting, his production, 
just everything about him is he's he's the real deal for one of a you know better saying. Most definitely, and he's exactly one of those guys that went from you know the early pound and thud of screaming at the world with a punk band to being you know a mature reflective artist and mm. I saw I've seen him live either once or twice. Sorry, I'm getting some echo here. Uh, I saw him live a couple of times, and he puts on a great show. Mm. He's up on stage rocking, and then he puts the the you know Telecaster away, and he gets out in the audience with an acoustic guitar, and everybody shuts up and listens as he stands there, and it's, it's kind of amazing. <coughs> and he's he's a pretty good raconteur between songs. You know, he tells good stories. And, oh yeah, you know, good banter. And you just you just got a feeling when when you're hearing him talk. You know, he's a man that he's experienced a lot of things. You know, good and bad, and he, he had his he had his battles with ill health and drugs, and but that's what I like, I guess. You know, the I admire the guys. Uh, we've talked about this before that they've had all that, but they come out the other side, and they're still artistically viable. You know, you have you know we have the the wreckages along the way. You know, unfortunately, people like Sly and. I guess we can name any more, but then you have the people like Steve Earle, you know, that he came out of a pretty bad funk. He was about as he was about as low as you could get, mm. work, working as a bouncer in a brothel. And he and he knew he, he he quite famously said he knew that he was going to die, and it was really that that judge that caught him with the drugs and the firearm. I forget the judge's name, but he said that judge saved my life when he threw my ass into jail, as he said. So uh, just. To quickly throw in, this is sounds sort of like a diversion, but, but it's, it's sort of related to what you just said. Has I, I presume that any of you guys have um, watched, been watching, um, uh, or, or did watch The Wire and or second season of uh, Treme? Oh yes, oh yes. I, I imagine he's playing like a fictitious version of himself. Mm. In a lot of ways, of, of what he's what he's trying to inspire and people to to stay out of. Mm stay out of jail or to keep themselves working and, and, and honest. And Well, I like how, you know, Tim, you said he's the real deal. I, I, I'll just tell this very quick story. My wife was trying to buy me a Steve Earle CD. This is many years ago. And uh, she went into the, you know, the normal ubiquitous, you know, virgin megastore or whatever. And she goes to the, you know, and, and normally the pimply-faced kids won't know who a Steve Earle is. And, and my wife came back with this story and she said, this you know, young kid, you know, 16 or something, said, ah, oh, I like this guy. He lives his songs. He's the real deal. And so I thought that's pretty good, you know, if you can um, reach that sort of young age. And this was probably, you know, in the 90s um, before he really, uh, well, I guess he, he, steadies, he steadied his artistic and his own life shit probably about um, mm-hmm. mid-90s. Mid right. There was the stuff he did, the early stuff he did with the Dukes. And I, I still love all that stuff, but uh, the one, you know, and I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit this, but there's always been one song that Steve Earle's done that uh, never fails to just uh, make me weep, and it's uh, Alice Unit One. Wow. There's and a song. Just, it's funny you should say it, Tim, because I, I also. I went back a little bit further with Steve Earle just the last month or so, and um, I always liked his The Hard Way album. Right. Uh, more so than Copperhead Road, which I think, you know, probably, you know, it's the album that obviously made him a lot of money, but it may not have been, you know, artistically strongest. 
But the hard, right. the hard way, I think, why I liked it, he was basically, he was pretty much in the, uh, you know, at the end of his nosedive. It was a pretty des- you know, desperate times. But there's a couple of songs on there. Uh, I always, I always forget um, the, the name of the song, but the one where he's uh, standing on a corner waiting for a drug deal, essentially. It'll come to me uh, later on, but um, yeah. So that's sort of the two veteran artists. And I'll just throw in one very quickly, and, we'll, and I'll, I won't take up any more time. And Tim, this one you you may know these guys because they hail from your parts. I took on your Leatherface recommendation and got a couple of Leatherface albums. Thank you very much from the last podcast. But somehow, I think in reading or whatever, it led me to a band from Ontario called the Constantines. Oh, yeah. And Actually, you know, they're great. I, I know a couple of those guys. Wow, they're, they're it's, Morris, I think you'd like it. <clears throat> um, you know, they, they came out of, I guess, Tim, you might know better and you can educate me, but I guess they also came out of a hardcore punk aesthetic. But right. as, as the concertines, it's, you know, it's pretty much, it's pretty melodic, uh, um, you know, balls to the wall, rock and roll. Already appealing to me. I'm gonna look, look them up. What's what's um what's a good album to uh, start off with? I think Shine a Light. Uh, yeah, Shine a Light's the big one. I think that's the their their good one. But I I think I got um, maybe one of their later ones, if not their last one, called Kensington Heights. That sounds pretty right. good too. No, um, I was gonna say that. Uh, the, Con- the Constantines come out of a really small town called Guelph, right. and uh, Guelph is probably about, you know, I'd say about maybe 45 minutes from my hometown. Wow. And um, a friend of mine, Aaron Ritchie's, used to put on hardcore shows in the 90s, early 90s, and there were so many different bands, and what he would do is uh, he'd have the lo- his local friends open up for all the touring bands, you know, like... Uh, no means no and all or doa or the doughboys or whatever but then what happened eventually is all these local bands started opening up for you know the uh, the touring acts they started getting bigger on their own mm. and they got to the point where they they never even needed to be opening for anybody and then what happened was a lot of bands dissolved but then everyone from these various bands all kind of uh, amalgamated and that's kind of what the Constantines are about. And, and killer, killer, yeah, my favorite, I guess, type, killer gruff vocals. Mm-hmm. Well, really. I, I think there's a connection too between them and kind of a little bit Springsteen too. Yeah. There's, sure. a, there's, a, feel, there's a feel there, uh, at least I get it. Yeah. A little bit of, you know, Rocking out like Springsteen, mm. and and pretty you know pretty tasty songwriting too. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, okay, so uh, so that, those are all your um, latest recommendations, are they? I've, I've got many more, Miles, but I think I might have to um, let someone else um, get some air. Well, our, our special guest and he's, he's probably been waiting there, chomping at the bit to uh, to uh, get some words in. So Thomas. Okay, well, um, I've been delving a lot. I mean, you and I were talking about this uh, when we got together for the Amy Man episode. I've been delving right. into 
a lot of recommendations from this guy of uh, this podcast, the Mr. Suave, uh, Suavecast. Right, yes, you were talking about that, yeah, I remember. And I've also managed to unearth a couple of forgotten favorites of mine, uh, particularly I've been listening to a lot of uh, a band called the Poppin' Jays that were around in the 90s, very early 90s. They were one of the victims of the dreaded uh, signing frenzy that grew up in the uh, the wake of Nirvana, mm-hmm. where uh-huh. all of a sudden everybody had to have their own alt band. And the Poppin' Jays were, were interesting. They're, they're like a, a kind of a power pop uh, band, two women and a guy from England. Mm-hmm. And almost all of their songs were they literally followed the whole three minute rule but literally the, the, the first two albums 90% of their songs were three minutes or under very high energy very kind of kind of a little bit a little bit on the twee side okay. and then for the third album they decided to become alt folkers which was very very weird but it's just it's just the just I, I, I always respond to the energy I've found somewhere on a <clears throat> you know site of some indeterminate nature <laughs> we're having a lot of fun with that tonight um a copy of holy cow i actually wrote about this on sing-along scriptures recently um the only album from martini ranch a bizarre little combo fronted by of all people the uh the actor bill paxton wow um and this is this is strange, vaguely '80s new wave in like the Devo mode, and I'm not just saying that because uh, Casal uh, from Devo produced the album. Um, kind of electro pop, but just I mean a lot of storytelling. You know how much I, I love writers who tell songwriters who tell stories yes with their songs and these these songs this album is definitely full of just very strange stories and it's different time periods and different eras and it's a lot of fun um i've been listening a lot to um the vaccines i've discovered the vaccines probably later than anybody else has um which um their most recent album uh, had like the expanded edition, which includes like the live tracks of the earlier stuff. Of was it Come of Age? It's called. Um, and what else? What else? Uh, the Corner Laughers. I love the Corner Laughers. Uh, they're from San Francisco. They are. Uh, it's, it's a female-fronted. I think it's a quartet. I first discovered them when I found a cover they did of, of all things, R. Kelly's Ignition, the remix. <coughs> Uh, but they're they're very much in the the um in the the kind of power pop, but very wistful, very whimsical stuff. Perhaps my favorite, my two favorite singles of theirs was from um, the most recent album, which is called Poppy Seeds. Is they do a song called Trans American Pyramid, mm-hmm. which is a love song simultaneously about the point of view singer and her boyfriend and a love song to San Francisco at the same time. Kind of merging the two together and Thunderbird from their last album Ultraviolet Gardens which is uh, it's about how sometimes you feel that life has pe- that, that 
it's that culture has kind of moved on beyond you. Mm-hmm. Using the idea of this mythical creature, the Thunderbird, and how it's like, I used to be the king of the walk, and I used to, you know, eat cow, pick cows up from fields and eat them whole, and now with your lawyers and your cars and everything, and that, I'm done. Goodbye. Um, just been, you know, I mean, I, I, I do a lot of, I've been doing just a lot of just hopping around a lot. Right. Uh, went ba- went back to Tori Amos for a while. Which how far, was, how far uh, back? Like, how far more, back? More recent, more recent stuff or Little Earthquakes? Or? Um, well, I, I, I just basically have been, do, been cherry-picking from the whole thing. What is interesting, though, about not counting this most recent album, which, of course, is that another one of those dreaded I can't find anybody else to give me money, so I'm just going to re-record my old material. Bullshit I hate so fucking much. I, I can't wait for um, Suzanne Vega to record an, an album of new songs. That's been annoying, annoying me. She's, I think, four albums in a row, and I think she only has like about five or six in her in her original catalog. So, um, but like the most recent, and but the the most recent albums, I've almost been. It, it's weird. I've always said I, I said it in sing along scriptures a number of times. You want your your favorite artists to evolve, but you have to accept the fact that they sometimes may evolve into something you don't want them to. Right. And I got into Tori Amos at the little, you know, at, at the ground floor with Little Earthquakes, and I responded to that very kind of like weird, dark whimsy, that kind of like dark whimsy that she had. And then somewhere in the '90s she kind of went off into this kind of where she decided to bed in the dark and just became whimsy mm. Mm. and the more recent stuff uh, abnormally attracted to sin and Nights of the Hunters which is the, this bizarro collection of fairy tale songs collaborated on that she collaborated on with her daughter seems to be more of a return to what she was starting with originally and then of course we get Gold Dust which like I said Shouldn't there be a rule, guys? Shouldn't there just be a rule that, that people shouldn't do that anymore? <laughs> we have well, two it, rules, I think, is um, artistic death now. And I was talking to a music friend about this covers album, but even mm. worse, a duets album. <laughs> you know you're in trouble, you've done both. I have a friend that, that thinks there should be a 10 year moratorium on being a big act. Basically, mm. should be allowed to play arenas for ten years. After that, you can still play, but you got to go back to yeah. being so that you're not chasing that 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 kind of you know super stardom, yeah. you know, kind of kind of thing anymore. And it allows artists to to make a pile of cash and then go back and do um, you know do what what they want to do. I think in the case of Tori Amos, I'm just thinking, why hasn't somebody pulled her in to do a blues record or a country record or you know somebody to come in and kind of um, get her excited about doing something new or different or you know um, something like you know we keep coming back to Johnny Cash but what Rick Rubin, Rubin did with right. Johnny Cash I mean I, I thought that the Night of the Hunter was it was an interesting new path so to speak giving her giving in totally to her storytelling Mm-hmm. Um, tendencies 
because those songs are little are, are literally just like little tiny stories. But then she goes off and does this gold dust thing, and I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. Um, and and to be, talking about albums of, of bands doing covers of their things, I think of, of like their influences. There are ways to do that that are positive, but then Most you get definitely. something. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the Joni Mitchell cover album was actually pretty good. And uh, there's a uh, this kind of dark wave artist, Unwoman, that I've really been enjoying, and she did a cover album of her influences, which actually was um, really good because she basically kind of deconstructed the songs and rebuilt them up. Hmm. But then you get um, then you get something like and. I cannot believe that I once thought this band was cool. You know, Everclear's The Vegas Years, where you just want to, mm-hmm. I just want to, at this point, find Art Aliakis and kick him in the nuts repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> After this, it's like, I, I, I once was really, really into that band. There was that moment where, uh, during Songs of American Movie, where he was married and he was like calmed down and he was doing these really interesting and intricate and personal songs and then something snapped and we get the vegas years and we get uh was it welcome to uh, the, that one album which sounded like him just me doing a tantrum for four hours and, and and now of course we got the i'm re- recording my old material stuff some some artists need to be kicked in the balls repeatedly yeah, you know, we we were just talking about uh, Alejandro Escovedo, and, and I mentioned that the uh, anim- real Animal album is the place to start with him. Mm. That is him looking back at his career mm. and writing songs in the style of the bands he was in, talking about that experience. So mm-hmm. he's not re-recording stuff, but he is mm. definitely exposing his listeners to the kind of music they were making at the time <coughs> and being able to comment on what it was. And, you know, that, to me, is fascinating. And I would love to see more artists do that. And that's something else that I could see Tori doing. And I, and I think that's was... what he touched on, um, Eric, was that Real Animal took yeah, him yeah. on that that um, three-run that three run, uh, with Big Station and Street Songs of Love. Mm-hmm. He was trying to recapture that, um, yeah, I guess the music and the evolution that he that he went through. And as I say, I'm very interested in the, in these live shows he did in December. It, it just okay. the set list just sounds awesome. Sorry, Thomas. Oh no, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, another um, example uh, of a band that's like that was trying to do a look back, but not doing going into an all covers album. Believe it or not, last year the Pet Shop Boys, who I adore, I've always adored, uh, put out a band called uh, an album called uh, Elysium which I thought was just really fascinating because it seemed to be Neil Tennant looking back on his career and doing songs in the style of various points in his career while also discussing it sort of with the, with the listener. And it, it was probably perhaps like the best album they've put out in the last five years. But, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's just like a cash grab for some of these people because they figure it's, it's a way of getting uh, a, a, few extra mu- a few extra dollars from the, you know, the baby boomers that they used to play to in the 80s and 90s or whatever. Mm. But this has to stop. Well, well the one that 
got got the um, good-natured argument between my friend and I was I said look I said now that John Fogarty's done a duets album I said I hold that I hold that guy with such high esteem I said but he's now that that's sort of um, dirtied his um, waters a bit you know like you know Kid Rock and whatever um, I said but don't think you're going to see Neil Young or you know Van Morrison or Dylan do a do do a duets album. As much as I love and revere Ray Davies, mm. I mean, oh, I you're not going to knock. The, you're not going to knock the Ray man now, eh? I'm not. I, I think he's one of the the true founders of power pop. Mm. But that duets album he put out last was it last year or the year before? All my, you see before. my friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, he needs to be punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't that happen he to him in New Orleans? He needs to be punched in the face for that one. Didn't, he ha- didn't that happen to him in New Orleans a few years back? Yes, it? it did. Well, he needs yeah. to be punched again. He needs to somebody. He somebody needs to be hired to show up at his house first thing in the morning and punch him in the face. Well, Thomas, the, the irony is, my friend who was defending uh, John Fogarty's choice to do a duets album, I said, no, I said it's John Fogarty. I said he does not do a duets album with you know does not have people like Kid Rock singing with him. And my friend brought up. He said, oh, the Ray Davies one. I said, another Exhibit B. <laughs> yeah, I wonder sometimes if, if, if also if some of these duets albums like See My Friends is them trying to re- say see how cool I am mm. look at all these young people who love me mm. I've got you know, one thing to say um, song, songs for Drella wow. is that it? Yes. the Metallica Lou Reed yes oh, no, uh, no. Lulu Abortion. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well. I don't. I don't know why the record industry hasn't figured out that chasing the young crowd is, is uh, not the way to go these days. Because you want to sell records, you're going to sell them to baby boomers and you're selling them to Gen Xers. You're not going to sell them to people younger. But do you think it's because, a cash grab that, that they're going to get the downloads? That because um, you know Lou Reed's going to sing with Adele. You know, I'm joking, but they're going to get yeah. you know four hundred thousand downloads. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, the generation that is the young people right now, they are now bought into the meme. The, the, the album meme has totally disintegrated for them. Yes. Yeah. It's all about the single songs and building up. It's all about the playlist, if you will. Mm. Yeah. We're the well, generation. Are... Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, there is a core of young people that are embracing the album and the vinyl but they're a you know five ten percent at the mm. most so but go ahead but Eric you yeah, know how but, you said I just I just say a, uh, there's a funny review here in Sydney where they said yeah they went Lou Reed he, Lou Reed he did that album with Metallica I think Lulu isn't it Morris yeah yeah, yeah that's what it's called and they yeah. said isn't it isn't it just uh, comforting to know that the coolest member of the Velvet Underground John Cale I got that was the other album I got, and I, I went <laughs> was he would do shifty adventures in Nookie Wood. <laughs> yeah, say no more. But you know, it, he, it's quite a good album. He, he uh, as John always does, he experiments with it, some loops and beats and whatever. But that, that's a quantum difference, I guess, between Lou clutching for artistic re- relevancy and John Cale not clutching for it. He's he still got it. One of rocks true. Uh, the old men. I mean, uh, how how can you uh, 
Oh, how can I say this? You know, how how can you try to better yourself after the Velvet Underground? How can you try to clutch for more after after having that kind of run? Mm. It's 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 it, you know, you can't you can't do any better than that. But, but I'll tell you, you can have a career like John Kale's, and I think you're going to go close. I'll tell you a funny you story. I heard about uh, Paul McCartney. Was um, Paul McCartney was recording in a studio uh, with uh, actually the bass player for Killing Joke, Youth. And Youth's a uh, pretty famous producer, and he's uh, he actually recorded the Verve or the Bittersweet Symphony and uh, a couple of other things. But he was basically. McCartney's primary uh, producer for the fire, uh, what's it called, the fireman? Right, yeah, yep, that was it. Yeah, so he was he was telling a story about how uh, he told Maka, he says, uh, hey, come into the studio tomorrow at, mi- at noon, we'll start recording at noon, and McCartney's like, yeah, okay, sure. So he goes to unlock the studio the next morning, and the door's already open, and he goes in there at 8 o'clock in the morning, and McCartney's already in there twiddling knobs and he's already recording stuff and you know just practicing and playing and singing and you says to him he says well I thought I told you to come in at noon you know I didn't expect you to be here so early McCartney says yeah I know but I really want to make something here that's substantial <laughs> and it's just like you know make something this substantial uh i don't know if you checked last time buddy the history books but you were in the fucking beatles you know like it's it's just, but he wasn't trying to be modest he was just honestly saying he wanted to create an album you know that was like yeah okay i was in wings and yeah i was in the beatles but you know i want i want to put out something that's solid right so you kind of have to admire him for that i mean you know and he and it wasn't like he was clutching clutching you know and trying to Pull in, you know, some young hip hop kid, or uh, you know, uh, try to go for the uh, younger quote, uh, quota quotient. Ugh, I'm sorry, I'm out of my head on cough syrup here. But uh, yeah, it's it just I, I thought it was kind of um, interesting that McCartney's still out there and wanting to record and and not just kind of rest on his laurels. Did any of you guys uh, pick up, was it the Heroes for Hope, the one where they had the older artist picking, handpicking the younger artist to cover their songs? Oh, no. Okay, this came out about two years ago, and it was funny because I, I picked it up because there were a couple of bands that I really liked. This was just the, the album that contained the Hold Steady's cover version of a, my favorite Bruce Springsteen song of all time, Atlantic City. Mm. And it was obvious looking at the track list who, which artists were choosing younger artists that they felt could best express their songs and which artists were choosing somebody because they were like the flavor of the month that, that day. You know, I, I'm mm. sorry. Somehow I, I, I can't imagine uh, Joe's, uh, Joe's drummer... Um, how come I can't remember his name? The other guy, Big Audio Dynamite guy. Um, Jones. Jones. Yeah, Steve Jones. Steve Jones. 
Honestly thinking that Lily Allen was the best choice to cover one of his songs. Well, who knows what anyone's uh, anyone's thinking or what they take to, uh, but you know, one would like to hope that it was uh, you know, decided in his mind on artistic merit rather than what would make him. Uh, I, I think in, in that audience. case, in, in that case, there was probably the fact that apparently Lily Allen was uh, her like her father was good friends with the Clash, so there was a okay. not quite nepotism, but a family connection there. Okay, well, so maybe there wasn't. Was I don't remember who her father is, but I know that that she was basically considered like Joe Strummer to be her, her like un- uncle or whatever. So, well, uh, her father was a comedian, and I, he did have a recording, a brief like novelty recording career. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I do recall remembering, you know, reading that. But yeah, no, she, she had like family connections to the Clash, so okay. So th- which I, I'm might... not saying that excuses anything, but that might explain it. But it, it's God, God bless people like McCarthy though, who are just keep. I don't think we're ever going to hear the the Paul, you know, Return to Abbey Road album. <laughs> um, well, hang on, well, just it, just to interject there earlier on today, I uh, I. Put on Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, which is you know somewhere from the mid 2000s or so. Mm. And I remember buying that at the time. I, I you know, like a lot of people, I'd sort of gone and ignored it for a long time. But I remember reading an article that said that this record was a lot better than it dared to be. And I saw some special that he did, I think, for the BBC, um, where he was talking about the album and he was playing stuff. He was recording stuff in front of him and uh, by himself, and uh, he just seemed so enthused. And thought, oh, "Look, I'll give this, I'll give this album, uh, you know, a, a bit of a listen." And a few years ago, and I bought it, and I, I became excited again. I sort of thought, "Well, you know, like you say, yeah, it's not going to be, you know, uh, return to the you know, the heights that he'd ever hit, but it's a damn fine record." And yeah, you know, unfortunately, because you know he made so many embarrassing things or you know stuff uh, songs that were uh, tweed that we tend to overlook him and, and probably a lot of artists who, who've gone and made a lot of mistakes and we don't tend to give them their due when they actually hit their stride and, and show something of, of form again and that was a really really great album but do you think that particularly with somebody with the width and breadth of um a career as as McCarthy, don't don't you think that that sometimes you have to go through a period, whether brief or or long, where you behave like a jackass, if you will, hmm. and, and do some really embarrassing, silly things, so that you you, you come out refreshed. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, not not. I mean, I, I think it's, it's like okay, it's like another band. That I've been I've been revisiting a lot. Uh, a band called Too Much Joy, who oh, were yeah, uh, yeah, they were from Scarsdale, uh, New York, and um, they were actually I, I always thought they they were they were a lot better songwriters than I think they allowed themselves to be. And there's they have a song called Hugo, 
about Hugo Burnham, and there's a line like, "Every every band should be shot before they have their combat rock." Hmm. But shouldn't every band have get that one awful thing out of their way, out of the way? That one thing that, that every band, no matter how talented they are, potentially has. Isn't it better to actually get it out of their system so they can move forward? Well, I think it's a good point, Thomas. I think um, I was talking to someone at work today, and I don't know how you guys feel, but say Neil Young himself, he, he had all those genre experiments throughout the 80s. Uh, you know, where he'd try Rockabilly and he'd have his country album and whatever. And I think he got all that stuff out of his system and that allowed for the El Dorado EP to a lesser artistic success, Freedom, to maybe a greater artistic success, Ragged Glory. But I think he probably had to have that period to spur him on to, I guess, do those. I think in El Dorado, I'm a huge fan. I don't know if everyone knows that EP. Yeah. It's something that was quite edgy. And, and, and to me, it was, oh, thank God, Neil's back. Uh, look, i I got I to gotta say then artistic merit is, you know, Oh, I mean, it's obvious, but it's in the eye of the beholder, or in the ear right, of the it's beholder. Because, because you know, freedom for me, I think it's, I think it's a a career high point. It, it, I think it's everything that we've ever loved about Neil Young distilled into the into the one album. You you got that you, you got that cover version of On Broadway. You know that that mm. sort of grungy sort of style. You got uh, your harvest. Well, maybe not quite harvest. Morris, you know what the genesis of Freedom was, which was was actually that, uh, and, and I think it was only released. Interestingly enough, he was down here at the time in '89. It was a, it was an EP just released in Japan and Australia on vinyl. The genesis of Freedom was El Dorado. Yes, where, I, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. And, and I think that's right. I, and I, but I feel that he, that was him coming back, but he had that, I guess what Thomas was saying, he had all those experiments or those things that, you know, that shit he had to get out or whatever we want to call it. You sometimes wonder, though, whether... Um, I, I know one one theory going around. And, I mean, I don't know why he would do it like this, but he left... Um, or reprise mm. and went over to uh, you know, record a Geffen record. Yes. And generally it seems to be the Geffen records where he artistically stepped, comes mm. back to Warner and then hits his strides again. So was it a deliberate thing? Was there pressure from David Geffen to make records a particular way? I mean... Well, he, he famously got sued, didn't he, for making um, what would they call it purposely uncommercial records? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And then, I think that was actually during Trans. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, when Trans came out. Yeah, I, 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 there's a um, there's a record shop here in Melbourne um, called Greville Records, and the guy who runs the shop, Warwick, who's um, famous amongst music lovers in <laughs> Melbourne for being. Absolutely showing, you know, admittedly, no objectivity with regards to Neil Young. And, you know, you'll, you'll say to him, you know, you'll be talking to him about Neil, and he's like, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, oh, but what do you think of trans? Oh, that's magnificent, underrated masterpiece. Um, <laughs> uh, old ways. Oh, great country record. Fantastic. You know? um, so, you know, maybe no objectivity, or maybe beauty is an 
here I have to behold. I think with Neela, with Neela we get very, very high peaks, and sometimes we get very low valleys. Yeah, I mean, one of the bands for me that really kind of uh, carries that is uh, the Ramones. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, the Ramones big time, because, you know, they had an album like Subterranean Jungle that, uh, you know, wasn't one of their better ones, but, you know, they, they, they hit some pretty low ends too, you know what I mean? After, you know, Leave Home and Rocket to Russia, and then, you know, I mean, where do you go from there but down? You know, it, it, it's just like, you know, when you come out of the gate swinging right from the get-go, right. sometimes yeah, I think you're down. right. Yeah, you're right, Tom. Sometimes I think, you know, bands need to kind of scrape the bottom again and get hungry and get mm-hmm. it together. And then, you I mean, know, you get at, the... Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, look at one of my favorite artists, uh, Warren Zevon. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think I've mentioned on my own podcast that I have a... <clears throat> A poster of him above my workplace as inspiration but he went through that awful period with giant records right where he you could tell the life just went out of him and it wasn't until he decided to go off and self-produce self-distribute uh, <laughs> with those last three albums and I think you know where he, he found his music in you know, sadly, at the very end of his life. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it... It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my kids say. <laughs> no, I think... No, I was gonna, was he, go ahead. I was going to say that, you know, and I'm not trying to, not trying to be uh, maudlin or anything overly serious, but I think, you know... When he when when Warren knew he was at the end, and the last thing he wanted to do was get in and record and get it out. And some sometimes I think you know, everybody knows that your time is limited when you're in the studio. But when you really know your time is limited, mm. you know the devil's chasing your tail. And um, so, you, so you know, was, it, was Mutineer on his last album? No, no, Mutineer no. is was, was on like, his was last. Giant's album. It was uh, he was with um, Electra Asylum for the longest time. Jumped to Virgin Records for two albums, which actually one was both were at the very least interesting. Mm. One of which I actually think was was very very good. Uh, then he went. He signed this ill-begotten Giant contract, which gave us Mister Bad Example and Mutineer. Mm. Um, and Mutineer is, it's obvious, he's just, I'm just, he's just coasting, except for the, the one song, the, the title song, which was, as he put it, his love letter to his fans. It was a gorgeous And song. he said, apparently it was a love letter that my fans returned to me. <laughs> um, and, and then, but the thing is, he didn't know about his, his cancer until, I think during the, the film, the, uh, recording of, uh, my rides here, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and I think that his 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 last renaissance starts with uh, that first uh, self um, distributed album, "Life Will Kill You," mm-hmm. where he goes right, back right. to being this kind of down and dirty '70s troubadour and starts doing these dark, 
fables again. Right. Okay. Um, all right. I'm sorry. I, you know, you get me on, on Zivon and I'm going to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have to... Um, <coughs> we've gone and spoken for a time about uh, uh, putting you and my son Max together on a podcast because he's a, he's a, a big Zivon fan. So um, I'll have to see if he wants to talk about Zivon. Um, all right. Look, I'll... Um, I don't want to push things on too much for time. I've got to be up really early tomorrow morning, so I might just sort of go through my list of um, recently listened to albums. Um, oh, so were you were you done, Thomas? Was there anything else you oh, wanted yeah, to I'm, mention quickly? I'm done. I'm done. Okay. Okay. So all right, I'll, I'll go through a list of a few things that um, I wanted to bring you guys' attention to. Now, the first album. Um, uh, is, is something for the power pop lovers here, and um, maybe John, if because uh, they're a Melbourne band, but you know, hopefully they'll show their way up to Sydney. There's a, uh, a new group called the Livingston Daisies, and they've got a, an album just put out called "Don't Know What Happiness Is." Mm. Um, now, this band—it's sort of like a bit of a, a for, from local perspective, a bit of a super group because it features. Um, on drums, Michael Barclay, who was uh, for many years the drummer for Paul Kelly and the Coloured Girls, uh, and then became the drummer for Weddings, Parties, Anything. Um, and it's got um, the great songwriting brothers team of uh, Van and Cam Walker. Now, Van Walker, uh, I might have mentioned briefly in, a, in an earlier episode, um, he, this is how prolific this guy is. He put out a best of album uh, in 2011, I think it was, for five albums that he put like about 18 months to put out. You know, what company will allow you to put out five albums in the space of, of 18 to 20 months? I don't even know that the Beatles did that back in the day, but um, he put out a great album called Underneath the Radar, 2008 to 2010. Uh, and you know he's called you know Melbourne's best kept secret. I don't know much about his brother Cam, but I know that they, they do work together, and he's also considered quite the um, the songwriter. And you know Cam, oh, so, so Van Walker's own stuff is a mixture of I guess folky pop and out and out power pop, and he gets to indulge in his, his uh, uh, power pop fetish in full bore on um, this album. And the other, the last member of the group is a local. Uh, I guess, yeah, folk rock Shantus Liz Stringer who put out uh, an album, I think, last year called Warm in the Darkness. So, uh, I, I love the fact that they've, they've obviously got a sense of humour because they've got this new album called Don't Know What Happiness Is and you know, this album is just full of happy tunes. Uh, if you like, uh, I, I guess if you like, uh, the, well, I've, I've mentioned often in the past one of my favourite uh, Melbourne bands, the now uh, long lamented Ice Cream Hands. Uh, but also, if you're a fan of Big Star or uh, Latter Day Teenage Fan Club, then you'll really dig uh, the Livingston Daisies. Um, the musicianship is, is just tasteful and restrained. And of course, you know, the thing that draws me in is the harmonies. They're just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's, it's strong, but with a laid back feel all at once um, it was re- they recorded it at like a, <coughs> a, a beach house in, uh, in a place called Inverloch which is about 200 kilometres away from uh, Melbourne so like beautiful little seaside town and 
Uh, they just you know, had some uh, a friend had a just a studio set up in his beach shack, and um, it, it, the band just sounds like they're really stretching out. They have a whole they have a whole lot of beers available, and and um, just you know, just really having fun with these songs, playing well and, and singing their gorgeous harmony. So yeah, if you're a fan of Teenage Fan Club and Big Star, then um, this is an album for you. Uh, Livingston Daisies, don't know what happiness is. Uh, now, okay, this is this is another number. The second album I wanted to talk about was um, one from Petra Hayden. Now she put out oh, an album. I love Petra Hayden. Uh, well, she, you might remember she put out an album a few years ago. Uh, she, she's the daughter of Charlie Hayden, who's like well loved in jazz circles. She she's actually married to Jack Black. Sorry. Oh yes, I think I read that in the last week. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, she. Uh, put out uh, an album a few years ago which I love the idea of and I like it in parts not completely successful uh, called Petra Hayden Does the Who Sell Out so she's doing it all a cappella, but she's recording all the parts herself I think she toured it live with like a 10 piece female choir um, but um, I, I'm not sure if it was the arrangements or the fact that maybe I just like a bottom end to a vocal sound and she can't deliver that but still you know kudos to her for trying that um, for this new album that she's done uh, in some ways works for me a lot better it's called Petra Hayden Goes to the Movies I made a post of it I think on the GGTMC Facebook page and um, I mean, there's, there are about two or three tracks there where there's a little bit of um, guitar work or piano work I think Bill Fussell plays on um, a version of uh, It Might Be song that was played in Tootsie but the the real meat in this is her vocal arrangements of um, uh, you know famous themes from uh, Taxi Driver you know God's Lonely Man although I would have loved to have heard what she did with uh, Betsy's theme the love the love tune or well not really the love tune is it but the the the, um, the lust tune if you will um, and, and she you know even like down to the uh to the percussion that you hear on God's Lonely Man and, and the horn section just absolutely fantastic arrangement um, keeping on the Bernard Herman theme she does the opening theme for, uh, for Psycho um, and there's some, just some weird ass harmonies going on there and I, I just you listen to it you wonder how the hell she does it um, A Fistful of Dollars Cool Hand Luke uh, music from uh, Superman the movie it's it's so much great stuff on this so um, uh, you know all done you know, done with a whole lot of affection um, so yeah a really lovely record if you're a so if you're a film fan if you're a, a music score fan if you're an acapella fan this will appeal to Petra um, came from um, the, the Stan Ridgway school if you will I mean she was part of Stan Ridgway's uh, project he had a couple of years after Wall of Voodoo called Drywall okay right and yeah. I think that this sensibility that Ridgway had, I think Ridgway was one of these people, I think, that he needed to be a solo artist. Right. Most he, definitely. as much as the Wall of Voodoo stuff was good, he never, he didn't really blossom until um, The Big Heat. Uh, actually, the first yeah. solo album. I was going to say that he, he actually wrote, put out one of my favorite albums of all time. It's an album called Mosquitoes. Oh, God, I love, yes, I love Mosquitoes. Oh, 
There's a song on there, the last track on that album is called The Mission in Life. And it's just a guy closing the bar down at the end of the night. And he's just talking about, you know, you know, every, everybody's got a mission in life. And, you know, it's like uh, right. we, give, we give motions to drink and they drown in the tide. And it's just the writing, the writing of Stan Ridgeway is just incredible. I mean, even now with his partner, he's he's still out touring and he's still out playing. And well, he just you know, he too. Right. Recently. Well, he's always putting out stuff. He's always always putting out stuff. And he came out of the same scene as Alejandro Escovedo and all those guys. I mean, the whole LA scene around the same time. But Stan Ridgeway, to me, man, like that guy is he's a true reconnoisseur and man like he is an american treasure that a lot of people have never realized you know like he, he's so criminally underrated it's not even funny the other major to totem that i have for inspiration over my workplace oddly enough is a set list i from a stan ridgeway so uh show that stan signed to me because it was my birthday <laughs> So he signed it to me, and he drew a little drawing on it, and he said, Happy birthday, Tom. And it just, it's another thing that I look up to, because he's another one like Warren Zevon, who I think that if he wasn't a musician, he, was gonna, he would probably be a short story writer. Absolutely. Very noir. Yeah. yeah, very noir. I mean, I love the fact that, like, you know, like, stuff, his stuff will start off maybe as a detective story and then become, like, a horror story. Well. Here's a weird connection going back to Tori Amos because she actually worked with Stan. It was on a party ball, yeah. Um, actually, Mosquitoes. It was okay. Peg and Pete and me. Mm -hmm. there, the, she did that and she did, I think she might have worked with him on party ball too, but yeah, yeah. it's kind of interesting. But, but I mean, Hayden, I, I've always thought the thing that I always get the impression of with, with, with like the Stan Ridgeway family is that you do what you want. You don't do what the you know, the market wants you to do. And I think that, that Hayden has been doing that with, you know, all these you know, she'll do like that. She did do a, like a collaborative album with Bill Frizzell mm. somewhere down uh, some, a couple of years ago. And now she she will do uh, these acapella albums, and I I just love the fact that she's constantly once again she's evolving. She's constantly doing these things, and so far she hasn't evolved into something I don't want. Yeah, just well, she she's she's obviously someone who's following her heart. I mean, coming back to this, you know, Petra Hayden sings the Who sell out. I mean, really, this is this is not an artist who's trying to compete with any of those groups that appear on the sing-off. And, you know, I, I don't have a problem with the sing-off, but, you know, really, this is, this is rock nerd territory. And this is obviously an album that, you know, she's lived with all her life or a good chunk of her life. So, you know, I mean, really just... I salute her for, uh, for for doing something you know, that she really loved, and you know, as I said, I don't think it all completely works arrangement-wise. But you know, I, I think you know, I, as a music fan, I feel better for it being in existence with its flaws and it not being around. And um, uh, and this new album, Petra Goes to the Movies, is yeah, just it, it's great. I, I I read a review that um, the, the guy looked at it and said, well, you know, it's all very nice and and all but you know really it, once a novelty's worn off would you want to listen <coughs> to it again and I thought well you don't get it yes I'll be listening to yeah. it lots and you know 
Really, because the, it, when it comes down to it, the song is a good... Yes, there's a familiarity, and, you know, that that probably that does play a strong part in it, but musically, it's it's all satisfying, and... Um, yeah, anyway, well, that's... Yeah, There's favorite. nothing wrong with familiarity as long as it's, um... Like, getting back to what we were talking about with like, the covers albums. Mm. There are covers albums that work because... Like, the Peter the Peter Gabriel cover album, like, two years ago, was New Blood? Or... Uh, that one seemed to work because he was working... He, he was bringing a Peter Gabrielness to it. Mm. As opposed to, um, you know, like the the Vegas years, <laughs> where it was just our Aliakis pretending to be the bands that he Thin Lizzy for two hours. Mm. Um, and I think Petra Hayden, especially by by taking it into the the realm of acapella by using and you know how much you and I have talked many times more about how much I love acapella yes yes um bringing it into that realm and but not trying to recreate the sound completely but doing filtering it through her sensibility right creates a unique object in and of itself even though it's an object that is a that has its echo in a, in a previously produced object right no, I, I, I completely see what you're saying there because um, I, I think too many of the groups are trying to use all sorts of studio trickery and make it sound like they're the instruments on the original record. They're going for, uh, you know, aren't we technically good? And they're missing the point of the pure human voice and she's doing right. something. It's her ideal. It's her voice. And I, I real, I, I'll, I'll be listening to this album you know, a thousand times over before I'd be um, listening to, um, I can't remember, there was a name, there was some collegiate group that did a version of Who Are You? And I, I don't ever want to hear that again. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, so the, you're right. I mean, and uh, you'll find no bigger fan of collegiate acapella than me. Well, maybe Ben Folds, but <laughs> other than Ben Folds. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there are times when they're, they're just trying to be there's none of the their personality in that in their cover right that's it yeah all right um i'll quickly go through the other things i've been listening to now um uh for those of you who will often look at the ggtmc facebook pages or the um uh, love that album facebook pages and not to mention where else he's on uh, there's uh, one fellow from uh, from Texas, uh, Dave McLemore, and um, I discovered we'd had a mutual love of uh, Australian songwriter and performer Paul Kelly. I was really impressed that um, he not only knew who Paul Kelly was, but he was a rabid devotee. And um, quite recently, he was shocked to find out that I had not um, really followed into the career of uh, Towns Van Zandt. Mm. Um, so I made a promise that I would go out and get an album and I said right well what's the one I should get and he said get live at the old quarter it's my favourite album ever any style any genre that's the one you've got to get so I thought right he said oh I've built it up I've built it up oh you're, you're probably going to hate me I said no 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 your, your taste I, I trust your taste um, I'm, I'm going to go for that so I went out about a week and a half ago 
and uh, picked up a copy of it. I've listened to it a couple of times, so I can't really say I've absorbed it as much as I would have liked. But um, what I'm really digging about this album is, even, I mean, it was recorded, I think, what, 1973 or somewhere thereabouts. And I mean, I guess what I was expecting, because I know that, you know, Towns is a revered songwriter and, you know, maybe not necessarily, you know, we're talking millions of selling albums or anything like that, but amongst you know, fans of quality songwriting, he would be highly regarded and I would have expected, you know, hearing this album in front of, a, you know, the Church of the Devoted uh, fans. And this really just sounds like, you know, he's he's in a place, there's an audience who just happens to be there, he plays a few songs and he's just very, almost measured and polite applause, but, um, but I think they're there to absorb the songs almost as if it's for the first time. I think he introduces Pancho and Lefty like, you know, it's not the iconic song that it is, but just like, oh yeah, this is a song I wrote. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering whether this is an audience who even knew who he was. I don't know really my, my history of him and when it was that he sort of um, uh, came to the public eye. Maybe, you know, Eric or Tim, would you have a clue? I don't really know when he came into the public eye. Maybe... You know, I think it was Poncho and Lefty with that that great Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard cover. Mm. It's probably when he came out of the uh, that underground. You know, there's a there's a really good documentary about him that that's worth checking out. Oh yeah, what, what's that called? I don't remember the title offhand. Give me a minute, and I'll. Uh, Is it Hawthorne Highlands? No, there's that's a that's a film that he appears in, but there's there's an actual full blown. Uh, documentary about him. Let me, let me see if I can get the title here. I know this is uh, this is good podcasting. In the meantime, yes, exactly. I'll just go. All right, let's see. Uh, it, it's called "Be Here to Love Me," yeah, and it's yeah. it was it was made after I believe after his death, and it's it's just a lot of people reflecting on him. And there's actually a really great scene with Chris Christopherson talking about the lyrics for Poncho and Lefty that, nice. that has stuck with me all these years since I saw it, the film originally. But yeah, definitely worth checking out. I've written that down. I've, I've written down a few things. You guys are costing me money. Jeez, I'm going to stop these shooting the shit episodes. It's just, <laughs> I can't afford them. Um, yeah. Uh, so no, yeah, no. But anyway, now this um, this album did make uh, an impression on me, but I still need to sort of absorb his own songs, you know, I mean, besides, but uh, one of the tunes, though, um, If I Needed You, which I had heard before, all of a sudden, I get Steve Earle and his connection to Towns Van Zandt, uh, I, I think I almost, re- wasn't there a quote somewhere where he said, I will stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table and pronounce Towns Van Zandt as the greatest songwriter that ever lived. And this, and, and, th- and this song, If I Needed You, sounds so much like something that later on came out of the pen of, um, of uh, Steve Earle. And I, I can't remember which one it is, but I know that there's a song on El Corazon that If I Needed You really reminds me of. Um, so, yeah, no, a, a, a beautiful live album. Uh, a couple of good covers uh, on there. I think So uh, Diddler's Who Do You Love. And after the rest of the album being so laid back and finger picking and who do you love he actually he picks up a pace there and um also taking uh, i guess a, a bit of a leaf out of the bob dylan songbook he um, he writes a, he, he wrote a thing called talking fraternity blues well actually it's just called fraternity blues. i 
that I've had before. Because it's like that sort of storytelling thing that Bob Dylan did with, you know, talking Bear Mountain Blues and talking World War Three Blues and that sort of thing. You know, very, very humorous. So, uh, yeah, Towns Van Zandt, live at the Old Quarter. Thank you very much, Dave, for uh, putting me onto that. And I should say right now that, um, before I forget later, that uh, Dave will be joining me on the next episode of Love That Album along with John Ross of the Feared My Ears Facebook page. And we're going to be talking about an album that I'll be mentioning in a couple of minutes because I've been listening to it a lot. Um, I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute. Okay, so um, uh, another album I've uh, been listening to a lot and I should probably be thanking um, Justin Bozon of the um, Mondo Film Podcast for this because he sent me uh, an album about a year and a half ago uh, from The Wonderments called Mind If We Make Love To You and I went out and bought my own copy of that because I just was so taken with it and um, I only recently got into getting um, a copy of uh, an album called Kaleidoscoping and this is sort of an odds and sods album the first half like I think before they sort of started recording CDs I released a whole bunch of things on cassette and when they did their first CD they put like a couple of uh, some of the better songs uh, from each one of these cassettes onto that album and the remainder ended up on kaleidoscoping but you know what the wonder means lesser songs are still absolute to my ears absolute top notch um, I absolutely love this uh, there's there's songs that they did for soundtracks or or, you know, um, or compilations. So they they have them doing their version of the uh, the uh, opening theme from the Peter Sellers movie, The Party, uh, which just is so natural in their hands. And um, also uh, the music that they wrote for uh, Austin Powers as well. Um, it's uh, very groovy, baby. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, the the music uh, on the album. You can tell they've been absorbed in listening to, um, well, I mean, Beach Boys is the obvious influence because um, all members of the um, Wonder Mints have been uh, a core part of Brian Wilson's touring band. Uh, presumably will now again now that Mike fucking Love has decided to, um, you know, ditch the talented members of the Beach Boys after the 50th anniversary tour. Um, should, by the way, be his official name now. What, Mike fucking Love? Yes. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll second that. Everyone, everyone say aye. Okay. Okay, good. Thanks. Um, so, but anyway, so this one of itself, yeah, the, the Beach Boys is uh, an obvious influence, as is, I'd say, the Bacharach. Uh, on a couple of songs, I can, uh, it's almost like I'm hearing Marshall French or singing uh, Bad Finger, The Hollies, uh, and even you know, Elvis Costello, Circa, Mighty Like a Rose. Um, is an influence on this um, but just yeah look you know, I, I know that um, you, you, you uh, being a fellow power fan uh, mm-hmm. Thomas is this um, is, are the Wonder Mints a band that you've uh, gotten into? Um, well I'm going to recommend somebody for you because, okay. and I'm going to go find, track them down right. what you've said but I mean if you like them have you ever heard of a band called The Jet Set? The Jet Set no I haven't they were, uh, it was a British band during like the, the, you know, the power pop revival of like the late 80s, early 90s. And they had this, the gimmick that the Jet Set were this um, band that was put together kind of like the Monkees for a fictitious TV show. Right. 
and they're very much in that same sort of Beach Boys 60s kind of mode. They put out like, I think it was like three albums. They're really, really good. I would definitely suggest you, you take a look, you know, for, for uh, you can probably find them in the <clears throat> places of rather oh, indeterminate no, nature. Oh, I, I can't do that. I need to Okay. Jet said, I can't Uh, right, okay, so yeah, I think that's it what I wanted to speak about in that level of detail. The other two albums I want to make mention of are very quickly, and I, I say quickly because I'm going to be doing shows about them. Uh, okay, so the first one I mentioned is, well, I was alluding to before, I'm going to be talking about with John Ross and Dave McElmore on the next Love That Album, so that's uh, episode number 42. Um, we'll be talking about the new Richard Thompson album called Electric. Now, I can't believe it's taken me 42 shows to uh, getting to talk about Richard Thompson because I've probably made you all bored to tears by how much I keep saying that he's my favourite uh, songwriter ever. But um, here, and once here we again, go. God bless him. You're never gonna you're never gonna see Return to the Wall of Death from <laughs> Richard Thompson. No, you no, you will not. And yet, there is something about every album that you think that is distinctly Richard. Thompson, you know, it's it's they they will all have a distinctive sound, but you always know it's him. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, I mean, there, there's a, a a common voice, but each thing is a object in and of itself. Yes. Um, so, well, we'll talk about the distinctivity. Is that a word? I don't know. Uh, of uh, electric on uh, that show in a couple of weeks time really looking forward to that i sort of thought well you know all these uh, all this time i've been thinking which thompson album do i cover and having a new one come out during the life of the show just sort of seemed a good excuse to pick that one and um i think uh, dave is a long time thompson fan and john is a new convert so i'm really very excited about having his fresh ears to um uh dave and and my long time thompson fan ears so that'll be uh so that's something I'm really looking forward to. And the final album I want to mention, and possibly the only member of you who might have heard of her, uh, would be uh, John. Um, are you a fan of Deborah Conway? Yes, yes. Well, she and her partner, Willie Ziggier, have uh, put out a new album called Stories of Ghosts. And it's sort of been a while since I'd uh, connected with her music, but I saw the latest album in uh, one of the shops here in Melbourne, and read through the lyrics, and um, I just thought, wow, you know, this enough. Um, it, it should be enough for me to buy. I'll have a quick listen to it's it. Because she's been pretty quiet lately. I haven't really heard no, much from no, her. No, not at all. Well, look, you know what? She'd been quiet for a few years. In the last, I think, three, four years, she put out a couple of albums. One called uh, Half Man, Half Woman, and mm-hmm. the other one called Summer Summertime or something like that, or mm-hmm. Summerland. I don't know. Anyway, um, she put out a couple of more acoustic-y albums, and this time she. I think she did some um, a bit of theatre, if not musical theatre. Well, oh, she she put a show. Oh, she'd also gone on the road with a group of um, uh, her favourite favourite fa- uh, favorite, um, uh, women Australian women yeah. songwriters called um, on a show they called Broad. Uh, yes. I think she, that ran for about three years. I think she organised it, financed it, uh, but was really very much into. Um, wanting to promote uh, 
great female songwriters and, and getting more attention to them. So uh, she she's certainly been busy. But this album, Stories of Ghosts, um, she's gone and described it as um, uh, she's uh, she and Willie are both Jewish, but they've gone and written an album using the stories of the Old Testament, but from an atheist's perspective. Uh, but it's what I find interesting is they haven't gone and taken the route that XTC did when they wrote their song, uh, Dear God, which was, I don't believe in you, but here's a list of the shitty things you've gone and done. Um, they look at it more from, I don't know, a cultural, historical basis. That's not to say that God gets off lightly um, or, or people's belief in him gets off lightly, but they, they don't take an easy cop out. Like, and, and don't get me wrong, I love that song by XTC, but I think that Deborah and uh, Willie have gone and taken a far more interesting route and they've gone and sort of explored it throughout this whole album. So um, that's worthy of a whole show and I'm very excited. I sent a note off to them saying, you know, would you like to come and talk about this on the podcast? And they sent, like, within 20 minutes, sent a note back saying we'd love to once March is over because they're doing a whole lot of heavy touring to uh, promote the album at the, at the moment. So um, I'll be uh, looking forward to <coughs> speaking to them. And, and, like, if you've ever heard any uh, interviews with her, uh, John, you can attest to the fact that she's a, a fascinating, very articulate interview subject. Very articulate uh, lady. Um, in fact, actually, I think I'd sent a note to uh, Michael Persh, and he'd spoken to her maybe about a year or a year and a half ago on sitting in a bar in Adelaide. He sent that uh, episode <coughs> link to me, and, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great interview. I'm looking forward to talking about the album and to um, talking with her and Willie about its recording. So, so um, yeah, th- that's basically a list of um, all I've been listening to. Now, um, I was hoping at this stage that we would have some time to talk about um, a bunch of other issues in the news, but um, my time has come. I actually, I'm getting up at about quarter to five in the morning to take my daughter to the bus for school camp. So um, my devotion to uh, music it has to be piss poor tonight, and um, I'll have to call an end to our shooting the shit session. But um, I've really, really enjoyed our time together tonight, guys. Yeah, it's been great. I think Morris don't undersell. You pretty good effort to be 25 to midnight, and you're up at quarter to five. And it was great. <laughs> um, it was great to meet Thomas, and uh, we hope um, Tim and Eric um, get their full health back soon. Yes, indeed. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. You're lying. You're lying yeah. it up in bed tonight, uh, or for the rest of the day, Tim. Well, excuse me. You're lying Sorry. it up. Oh, hang on. Wait a minute. Oh, you're in our you're in our neck of the woods, of course. So, well, sort of. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're in our yeah. time. You're in our time frame. Okay. Sorry. <coughs> oh, well, you, you and a it. shout out to you, Tim. I I got. Um, I think I mentioned it earlier. I got Leatherface, um, the Stormy Petrol. Yeah. And yeah. I got uh, Leatherface Horsebox. And Eric, I um, I've been delving into the um, riches of the Calgary Cassette Preservation Society. Cool, cool. And I've got a, um, you know, I haven't explored them fully, but I've got um, uh, your recommendation, The Forbidden Zone. Oh, cool. before I forget, oh, man, I know what I wanted to say. John, something I think you would really dig is, uh, I was telling Morris already about this a while ago, but uh, about two Sundays back, actually, I got to see a band from San Francisco that came through Seoul, the, the three OCs. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, Holy shit, man. 
those, those guys put on one hell of a show and they just like, it was like a cold thermometer up the backside. It was just completely wow. like a shock. Like, I mean, if you can imagine kind of like, uh, they're, they're, they're a little like they're psychedelic, but they're, they have the elements of the B 52s, but they've got, uh, I don't know, Morris, I played them for you. How would you describe the three OCs? Uh, that was that was the um, was that the one that sort of sounded a bit like um, uh, vintage trouble, the the really sort of funky, rocky sort of sound. Was that was that then? Cause no, you, that was the one. Sent me a few. Sent me a few. The one, the three OCs was the band I was I was uh, I sent to the live footage of the guy where he was playing the Telecaster and he's holding it like a ukulele almost. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, no, I, I do remember that now. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't put that into words. But I do remember. No, that. but there, the John, I would, I would highly suggest you look up the three OCs because I think you'll really dig them. That sounds good. Is it just the three and then O dot Cs? Um, I'll send you a link. Great. And, uh, yeah, I'll send you a link to some videos and some information. But I think you probably appreciate them. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, no problem. I'll just send a couple of quick shout outs. First of all, we we're talking about him off air, but. Um, to uh, <coughs> our good friend and love that album alumnus and Bruce Springsteen devotee Jeff Smith he got uh, married yesterday to the lovely Kate Cantwell I was uh, very privileged to be invited to uh, the wedding um, so uh, Jeff looking forward to uh, going with you and the family next week to see uh, Bruce Springsteen at uh, one of the Melbourne concerts uh, very much looking forward to that and also, I think today was a day that uh, another Love That Album alumnus, Michael Persh, uh, was having his 50th birthday celebration over there in Adelaide. Sorry I wasn't there for you, uh, Michael, but um, it was great to uh, meet up with you <coughs> in, uh, in Adelaide a few months ago. It was, uh, it was really terrific. Look forward to uh, the next time we'd be in the same room. In fact, actually... I'd like to remember too, uh, Morris, it's, um, I'll just tell the other uh, guys... I'm uh, taking my 13-year-old daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, my wife to... Um, we've paid a lot of money for their education, but they're going to see Bruce Springsteen tonight with me, uh, tomorrow night. Mm. Well, that's their education. That's the education. It's going to be their first rock, rock concert if we, um, if we discount the Wiggles in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> if that ain't going to You're school, I don't know discount what it is. <laughs> Now, look, if, if the truth be known, you know, they said to me, oh, this guy plays for three hours. We prefer to see Pink. I said, no, look, whether you like it or not, you're going. When I'm long in the grave, you might look back on it and you'll appreciate it. Well, you yeah. know, it's funny. I'm, I saw Springsteen years and years and years ago, like Born in the USA tour. Mm. And uh, I, wonder, I wonder now if it would ever be the same without the big man. Mm. It's, uh, well, it, it, we're going to... We're going to find out in the next week. I mean, looking at the, we've had um, some time to sort of um, uh, acquaint ourselves with the fact, you know, no Danny Federici, uh, no big man. But you know, I mean, of course, at least it, they're keeping in the family with his uh, nephew Jake. I think on on the sax. And I mean, truth be known, like the last time Bruce was in Australia was 2003. I remember seeing him on the eve of the American invasion into Iraq. And he he opened up with the Delta Blues version of Born in the USA and then um, uh, uh, Edwin Starr's War. But really, I mean, apart from 
the big man's you know, presence on stage as his right-hand man, musically, he wasn't really doing very much. Uh, no. Whereas I, I think I think uh, Jake is uh, a lot more involved uh, at, at this stage. Uh, but the one that um, uh, I'm not happy, and I'm not sure where you stand on this, John, is uh, Miami's Steve Van Zandt is, has been replaced for this tour by Tom Morello because um, he's doing some TV show. And, and look, you know, I, I've got to say that as much as I love The Sopranos, Miami's Steve Van Zandt was the weakest link in the program because the man cannot act. He was a caricature. Uh, so, you know, Miami Steve, you know, keep away from television. Come to Australia and play with your boss and, and you know, give us what we want. I mean, I don't care if Tom Morello is a better guitar player than Miami Steve Van Zandt. I want my, you know, I want my Steve Van Zandt. That's it. I, is that like wanting my MTV? I don't know. <laughs> So, so that's um, but and also, yeah, uh, Thomas, I've I've um had I've had uh, contact from uh, your good friend Derek Ferguson. Oh, good, good. Of Better in the Dark, so uh, we'll have him on a show sometime in the not too distant future. I hope we've just got to sort of work out where we uh, what musically we'd like to uh, cover. So, um, so that'll be cool. nice. Cool. All right. Just uh, go easy on him, okay, Warren. Oh, you're talking about you're talking about your Derek. He's uh, tell yes. him to, tell him to go easy on me. <laughs> but um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll find an album that he's passionate about, and we'll have a we'll have a really good time with that. I'm really looking forward to that. So um, I don't think I'll go through pleasantries because it's getting on to twenty to midnight here. So, but um, all you podcasts out there, you know I love you all. Uh, any any of you guys want to give a one more quick shout? Yeah, can I? Can I give a quick one to uh, the List Music Podcast, wherein I actually just recorded an episode with them uh, the other night. We were talking about synth pop, so that's coming up soon. No, no, so hang, is that with the whole crew? Or is that just you, Ricardo, no, and a couple of other ringers? No, it was me and Ricardo and Stuart. Right. Okay. So where was everyone? I was, uh, VK's always <clears> on the road nowadays, but yeah, I didn't get a, a you know didn't hear what everyone else was up to, but we were kind of the fill-in listers. <coughs> It's fine. Nice. So I look forward to that. I'll um I'll search, make sure when because they see they seem to be putting out the shows a little bit more sporadically. It doesn't seem to be terribly regular, like every Sunday or every Monday or whatever. So yeah. it's a bit hard to wait around. All right, guys, thanks very much uh, for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with. Uh, Thank you, Morris. Oh, my pleasure, Thank Tim. Thanks, thanks for thanks, having thanks, me, Morris. Yeah, thanks, Morris. Uh, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks talking about Richard Thompson. So till then, read some great books, listen to some great songs, watch some fantastic movies, or if you want to go through that period where you feel you have to do the read, watch, and listen to some shit to get over that hurdle, as we spoke about before, then do that too. And if uh, you run across our Aliakis, kick him in the ball. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've, got, you've got this scrotum fixation tonight. I don't know what's going on. It's all early. Right. All right, let's And if we see our favourite act um, just having an inkling of doing a duets album, please try and actively stop them. Uh, Bruce, I hear that's Bruce's next project. <laughs> all right, guys. I'm going to do some duets. Speak to you soon. See you guys. Night. Take care. Cheers. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.